have always been with us in different forms and in different ways. They have been either imaginary or visual, set in stone or highly dynamic, but their relevance has always remained a constant in cultures around the world. Maps are useful abstractions of infinitely complex realities. And so learning what is their role when doing our work is one of the most important skills that we need to learn. This is Peace and Conflict Fundamentals. My name is Andres Jimenez. So, why conflict mapping? Well, because in order to organize our work, our approach, and our understanding of a particular context, we need to understand, at least roughly, how the different forces and elements that characterize this context place it in relation to other scenarios and other contexts. Now, this is important because if you are researching or starting to work with a particular conflict situation, or if you're looking to analyze a local economic market in order to establish a social enterprise or a particular project, it is vital that you have a rough idea of what are the dominant dynamics in this local context. You need to have a map that can orient you. However, before we move forward, it is fundamental that we work very carefully with the maps that we have. As I have previously described in episode 3, the mechanistic perspective is profoundly obsessed with working with maps, charts, and carefully laid out plans. As I outline in this chapter, there is a significant temptation to become overly dependent and focus on the use of these tools that often do a very poor job of matching local dynamics and realities. There is a significant temptation to become overly dependent and focus on the use of these tools that often do a very poor job of matching local dynamics and realities. So when working with maps, you should do so very carefully. And in my experience, the best way to proceed is to always remember to question who is drawing the lines and the boundaries, who is doing the naming and the describing, and who is doing the framing and the interpreting 
within these maps. And especially, always remember to account for the very real possibilities of the map not really matching the territory that you're trying to understand and explain. So, you have been tasked with analyzing a conflict in a particular region or you want to better explain why certain actors have managed to dominate a particular sector of the economy or you want to understand how complex systems evolve through time or maybe you want to understand how a certain development project can be modified in order to avoid some of the potential traps and mistakes that can cause it to run into considerable obstacles from the very beginning. Sure, there are dozens of mapping tools that you can use in order to create your own theoretical models and maps. Tools with diverse levels of complexity and scope that offer the possibility of integrating ever larger amounts of data in order to produce increasingly detailed maps and charts. However, in my case, I am much more interested in working with tools that offer us a quick and relatively simple way of getting started. Methods that are as simple as possible, but that at the same time can allow us to go much deeper into our analysis if eventually needed. So I think that we must find a tool that is useful and dynamic at the same time, and that can show us clear steps that we can use in order to adjust the level of complexity that we want to work with at every moment in our analysis. And I have personally found C.S. Holling's Panarchy model as a particularly powerful tool in order to establish a framework through which we can begin our mapping work. Panarchy being a concept put together by hauling in order to merge the notion of unpredictable change with that of hierarchies present in the relationships of adaptive cycles. And it is a model that attempts to show the transformation process of hierarchies from fixed static structures into dynamic and adaptive entities. So picture the infinity symbol with four different stages at each corner, which represent the different stages that we can find in the system. And so we have in the bottom right corner 
what Holland calls a release phase. And this release phase is characterized by a sudden influx of energy or resources into the system. A typical example can be the first days or weeks after the overthrow of an authoritarian leader or a certain economic market that has suddenly been transformed by an unexpected event. Like, for example, how the different markets around the world started to look after the first days or weeks once the coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. The international travel and airline industries will be good examples of industries that are currently still very much stuck within what can be described as a release phase. And so release phases are inherently chaotic and unstable because there is simply too much energy within the system and the traditional powers and structures that have controlled or regulated much of the system have suddenly collapsed. And this means that there is a massive potential present in the system because of the sudden increase in freedom and possibilities. However, it is often very hard to make much progress during this phase because there is generally too much uncertainty and disorder within the system. And so there are enticing openings within the system, but the uncertainty and the chaotic nature of the system makes it extremely difficult to truly take advantage of these opportunities. Now, if we continue in the path laid out by the infinity symbol, we can move to the top left corner of the left ring towards what Holland calls a reorganization phase. And during this stage, we can see the emergence of a certain level of stability within the system. The chaos of the release phase begins to settle down and certain patterns have slowly begun to emerge. An example would be when a transitional government begins to take shape and takes power after the overthrow of the previous regime or how certain businesses, certain companies were able to begin to reposition themselves in order to increase their market share once the new post-COVID-19 reality began to set in and they realized that many of their traditional competitors were suddenly out of business. This is an excellent time to experiment because suddenly previously isolated or constrained elements can begin to reorganize themselves in surprisingly new ways. However, the gains that are made will still be much harder to maintain and consolidate because there still remains a low level of connectivity 
among the different elements within the system and internal regulation within the system is still weak. So we still can't really account for much stability. Now, both the release and the exploitation phases are generally characterized for being sudden and rapid. However, if we continue through the infinity symbol towards the bottom left corner, we can see the system now beginning to slow down and enter what Holling calls the exploitation phase. Changes in the system have now become more difficult because controls and regulations begin to increase and become more effective. The system has now entered a slow period of stability and the successful experiments and gains made during the reorganization phase can slowly begin to consolidate themselves, especially because trust is now at a much higher level. And so exploitation phases can be highly productive for those industries, companies, or living systems that have managed to successfully survive the chaotic and turbulent release and exploitation phases, and that have managed to adapt themselves to the new reality. Finally, the system slowly moves into the top right corner and into what Holling calls the conservation phase. And this phase is characterized by a significant accumulation of resources and information. It is during the conservation phase that we see the consolidation of structures and the systems of order and control. And this takes place because the level of connectedness between the different elements in the system is now very high, at least compared to other phases. And this stage can be considered as quite stable because there is finally a high level of control and order in the system. However, we must always be aware that this stability can be deceiving because all complex systems are in constant transformation and in constant movement. And the systems of order and control in the conservation phase at times are not organized in such a way that they can allow for the necessary amount of transformation to take place. What can occur in these cases is that the potential begins to build up. And this potential refers to the possibility that the system can eventually enter into a new release phase leading to an entirely new cycle.
Now, one of the biggest temptations that exist for systems that find themselves in a conservation phase is to focus the majority of their energy and resources in trying to achieve as much control and order as possible. The typical example could be a deeply authoritarian government or a company that has been able to practically dominate an entire market. When this happens, we could enter what is called a rigidity trap. And this name originates from the fact that there is an excess of rigidity in the system. And often, these are systems that have a high ability to resist external disturbances because they have been able to achieve a very high degree of connectedness which leads to considerable levels of social control and of very tight regulations within the system. And it is called a trap because it is a form of organization that can be surprisingly resilient, but it is also considered to be a maladaptive system. It is often very hard for the potential in these systems to reach a critical point where a release phase can take place. The potential, in this case, refers to the work of activists or civil society groups or opposition parties. But if change manages to take place, then the release phase, in these cases, tends to be incredibly powerful and violent. And often it has the potential to take the system to the opposite extreme, to what can be called a poverty trap. And traditionally this occurs when a sudden release phase is so brutal and violent that it leaves the system with extremely low levels of connectedness, with practically no trust or regulations. The system is so unstable and chaotic in these cases that it is extremely hard for the potential to become sufficiently organized in order to begin to stabilize the system. A typical example of a system in a poverty trap could be the revolution that took place in Libya and its outcome in the weeks, months, and even years following the fall of Muammar Gaddafi's regime. And so, none of the traps, either the rigidity or the poverty trap, allow for natural growth, creative flows, and sustainability. Instead, they test the extremes of the system. Lastly, we must also account for the existence of different systems interacting 
and affecting each other. Multiple systems interact and cohabitate constantly, which means that a smaller, faster moving system can actually influence and affect a much larger and slower moving system. So, for example, we can have a sudden release phase in a small system like a revolution in a particular city, say the Libyan city of Benghazi, for example. A city that entered a rapid release phase after over 40 decades in a profound rigidity trap. And naturally, these developments in Benghazi affected the much larger and slower moving system, which was Gaddafi's regime. This form of cross-system interaction between a slower and faster moving system and a much bigger and slower moving one is called a revolt connection. However, this initial revolt connection produced by the release phase in a much smaller system provoke a retaliatory reaction by the much larger system. A larger system that still found itself very much within a conservation phase. And this cross-system reaction by the larger system, in this case the Gaddafi regime, towards the much smaller one being the rebels in Benghazi, is called a remember connection. And remember because the larger system draws from its pool of resources and accumulated experience in preserving and maintaining the conservation phase. In other words, Gaddafi implemented the methods long used to quell dissent and uprisings during his over 40 decades in power, namely the use of repressive violence. Measures that very likely could have managed to force all smaller systems back into a conservation phase through the suppression of visible forms of dissent if international involvement in the conflict would not have taken place to the degree that it did. Now, a similar scenario could also take place, but in a reverse way. Say, for example, when a political party characterized by extreme right political ideologies and extremist and anti-democratic views might achieve surprising electoral gains at a local, state or provincial level with the aims of eventually gaining significant power at a national level. But then the larger system composed by the country's democratic institutions can rein in the advance of this party through the Remember Connection. So, Hollings 
Panarchy model is certainly a powerful tool that can help us in a considerable way when trying to map and better understand complex systems. And it is a tool that can teach us to work and to experiment with the concept of elastic complexity. But at the same time, we also need to constantly remember that maps are a guide. They are not instruction manuals. And if our preconceived understandings of a situation are not changing and evolving from time to time, then maybe we are not really listening. Then maybe our assumptions and our sources are obscuring certain perspectives and experiences that traditionally have never had a voice.